Algorithms for building neural networks have existed for decades, but for a long time, neural networks were not widely used. Recent changes to the cost of compute and the size of data available have made these neural networks useful. Our smartphones generate terabytes of useful data. Lower storage costs make it economical to keep that data. Cloud computing democratized the ability to do large-scale machine learning across deep learning hardware. Over the last few years, these trends have been driving widespread use of deep learning, in which neural nets with large series of layers are used to create powerful results in various fields of classification and prediction. Neural networks are a tool for making sense of unstructured data, text, images, sound waves, and videos. Unstructured data is data with high volume or high dimensionality. For example, an image has a huge collection of pixels, and each pixel has a color value. One way to think about image classification is that you are finding correlations between all those pixels. A certain cluster of pixels might represent an edge. After doing edge detection on pixels, you have a collection of edges. And then you can find correlations between those edges and decide where those edges abstract. And you build up higher and higher levels of abstraction. Yin Yin Lu is a principal engineer and the head of data science at the Intel AI Products Group. She studies techniques for building neural networks. Each different configuration of a neural network for a given problem is called a topology. Engineers are always looking at new topologies for solving a deep learning application, such as natural language processing. In this episode, Yin Yin describes what a deep learning topology is, and she describes topologies for natural language processing. We also talk about the opportunities and the bottlenecks in deep learning, including why the tools are so immature and what it will take to make the tooling better. Full disclosure, Yin Yin works at Intel, and Intel is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Yin Yin Liu is a principal engineer and head of data science at the Intel AI Products Group. Yin Yin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. You've worked in machine learning for over a decade, which is a long time given that there's a lot of new people entering machine learning today. How have you seen the field change over that period of time you've been involved? Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting experience in the last decade. At the beginning, that there are a lot of new ideas, and gradually these new ideas are trying to extract information from the data to allow a computer program to learn. So a term, this technology called machine learning, and machine learning actually touched upon a lot of different disciplines and area. Around 2012, this new discipline called the deep learning started leveraging a lot of the new resources, data set and computing infrastructure. So as you, everyone can see that deep learning has become a very prominent discipline within deep learning. These days, researchers are having a lot of momentums and a lot of collaborations throughout the open source community and open research community, uh, working on a lot of the deep learning problems all together to push the field forward. The deep learning techniques that people are using today were around a long time ago, but it seems like there were a number of prerequisites that actually needed to be built in order to make use of these techniques. And I think those prerequisites were you needed cheaper data storage and you also needed people generating that mm-hmm. amount of data. Now, you know, now you've got smartphones and sensors and people doing internet searches. You've just got more engagement with the digital world that has produced all this data and you've got places to store it thanks to cloud computing. You've got all these lower-level processing primitives for doing high-volume data science, like Hadoop and Kafka and Spark. And from my perspective, it, it was those prerequisites that really allowed machine learning to take off. Would you say that, is that consistent with your experience? 
Yeah, you're exactly right. Machine learning or deep learning sounds like a simple term, but it actually touch upon a lot of technologies and products or、um, opportunities going into the enterprise use cases, the consumer use cases. All together, make the current state of the field possible. The a lot of the technology you just mentioned that really impact how a technology company really to provide the products or portfolio of products to support all kinds of deep learning and machine learning use cases. So coming from the data collections and gathering more resources for training data and testing data, that touch upon a lot of products that how you really allow. Users to provide their input, how you gather resources from many different sensory inputs, and then the data storage, data transportation, and then eventually come to the compute side. Even with the similar machine learning algorithms, based on how that data pipeline is structured, then it plays a very different requirements. How How that product should handle the data and how to handle the compute. So really, that in order to enable all these ideas and the technologies into something that can impact daily usage, it requires a whole set of products and technologies. And we've certainly covered the the software components of those in detail. You've spent some time in electrical engineering, and you work at Intel. Intel's Core competency started in the electrical engineering side of things and has worked up the stack towards having competency in software as well. And how important is that knowledge of hardware when it comes to developing machine learning tools? Yeah. So earlier you also mentioned that nowadays machine learning and deep learning are possible because of the newer hardware support. On these type of compute or workload, so definitely in order to make machine learning solution working or create some good analytics solutions, that you need a very good compute. There are a variety of different hardware options available these days in the market for people to choose what type of hardware is more suitable for each one's individual use case. So then. Understanding that what hardware you have and what are the constraints you have, definitely create a lot of insights for data scientists and or machine learning engineers to structure the setup in order to create such a solution. Working at Intel for myself, we're part of、uh, AI products group.、Uh, the AI products. As I mentioned, it touch upon a whole portfolio of a different type of hardwares and softwares, and many different other products. So, working in a group that with all these different hardware activities and development going on, that allow me, or the background in the hardware and electrical engineering, allow me to talk to a hardware engineer more easily, even though I'm. I'm standing from the algorithm perspective or from the system perspective. I can pose the question or create the requirements or project on the future hardware trends, and working with the hardware engineers very closely. Similarly, the background in software engineering provides a similar framework as well. So that using being very familiar with all kinds of、uh, deep learning frameworks and software allow me to quickly structure a certain data science models and create a certain solutions. But also, once I see different requirements that the current deep learning frameworks are not supporting, I will be working with the teams that are developing framework softwares together. To make the framework better to support newer and more interesting models. What are the operations that hardware needs to optimize for? Because I I know that a lot of machine learning models boil down to processing large sets of matrix operations. So what needs to be optimized for at the hardware level? When we look at all these different new deep learning models. To solve computer vision applications and NLP applications, or reinforcement learning, so on and so forth, each of these different areas 
requires a set of similar relevant, but also different type of neural network architectures. So these neural network architectures will boil down to lower level computing motifs. For example, in computer vision, convolution is a very commonly used computing components. Batch normalization is also another very commonly used computing components. And similarly, in NLP area that we have recurrent neural networks or the newer ideas on temporal convolution neural networks. So, and then in robotics or reinforcement learning, there will be other computer motifs such as sampling algorithm. So all these different type of architectures boil down to a, a set of overlapping, but in some area different computer motifs. And for a hardware to best support all these different type of applications or workload, we need to make sure that the hardware support these features, not only from a functional perspective, but also from a performance perspective, so that when people use these hardwares, that they can get good accuracy, but also can do training quick enough and can also run a trained model in inference mode fast enough for their applications. I see. So you have been building tools for these different deep learning domains like robotics, NLP, computer vision, and you have to interface with all these different teams, different people at the software layer, at different, probably you probably have to interface with some mathematicians, Mm -hmm. certainly some hardware engineers. From your experience interfacing with all of these different people, what are the classes of problems that you think neural networks and deep learning are useful for? Is Is there a broad swath of problems that we're going to see advancements in? Yeah, sure. So, First thing comes to our mind is that nowadays with typical deep learning algorithms is is mostly about converting a problem into numerical representation and try to compute try to extract the features and the compute output using these numerical representations or vector matrix representations of data so that any type of data, as long as there is a good way to represent them numerically and to do these parallel type of compute, then it will help us to solve the the problem. For example, in computer vision, the very natural way of representing image is through the pixel values. In natural language processing, there are a lot of research work to, um, to be done in order to find out an optimal way to represent a text using numbers as well. There are works that are trying to represent text on word levels or on sentence levels or even on character levels, convert them into vector representation. Similarly, that in robotics and reinforcement learning, the inputs, the sensory inputs into the robot agent, that whether it is images or audio or some state representation. So because the essentially all these different type of inputs can be represented as dense vectors, then it really allow a neural network to efficiently to process them and leveraging the hierarchical structure of the neural networks, it will learn how to best represent the features and informations on different levels of abstraction in order to achieve the task at hand. And those different domains, they sound like most of them have some lack of structure. And much of the the, the topology of a deep neural network is about bringing structure to the unstructured data. So you have, in the case of computer vision, the earlier layers in a neural network are about convolving to find edges within an image, and then you can use those edges. A set of edges is a more structured data set than a collection of pixel values. I mean, a collection of pixel values does have a sense of structure, but it's such a a, a fine-grained structure 
mm-hmm. uh, and and there's so so much density to it that there, it's hard to know what to do about it. So you have to reduce the dimensionality, right? Or or maybe not reduce yeah. the dimensionality, reduce the I guess in that sense you'd be reducing the cardinality That's of the right. the number of data points. And then then I, similarly with NLP, you've got the you know you've got just got this unstructured text, and you need to add context to it. And there's things like, well, I guess I'm less familiar with NLP. We did a show about word to vec but uh, I'm not sure how what you can do with a large blob of unstructured text. Yeah, maybe, I mean, well, one thing I'm curious about, like, if you take one domain, one da- domain of unstructured data, like the image example, and there are advancements in the image recognition field where you have where you know we can make sense of a, of a large set of pixels that have rgb values how well do advances in image recognition translate to another domain involving unstructured data for example in lp you're exactly right it's a good question that as you described it that in image case that the network the goal of the network is try to convert more primitive signals with a lack of structure to a more structured or abstract representations. So this type of features or functionalities transfer pretty well from domain to domain that in natural language processing case that the first level of input is usually character level representation or word level or sentence level. And then you can gradually build up that when you look at multiple characters or multiple words, what are some of the high-level features that you can extract? And then gradually build up from group of words into group of sentences or group of paragraphs. Also, in language, there is a unique feature about temporal continuation in the sense that one sentence after another usually have a lot of semantic meaning built in, in in that sense that when we try to train a network that can uh, handle such temporal transitions from words to words or from sentence to sentences, the network itself is able to correlate more higher level temporal features and to really extract the information from language data. There are also, so like NLP and image recognition, these are two fields that have been studied deeply. And they've been studied so deeply that there are experts in, such as yourself, who who have studied both things. And so you can draw on your expertise in NLP when you are doing something in image recognition. But I wonder... So like in so deep learning is this hammer for which there are many many nails and any domain with lots of unstructured data you could take something like the air quality and try to you know train what kinds of air quality do athletes perform the best in right like that's something that I'm certain there would be value in studying that but if you if you're just like st- tackling a new problem like that is it is it trivial to to figure out the fields the topological methods that you can borrow from other domains or does it take like a matter of iteration and research you know if you're if you're walking into a new field with a lot of unstructured data that you're trying to build models for what's the methodology for pulling topological strategies from other domains? Good question. Definitely that in order to build a model that works for a practical use case, it has challenges in many different aspects. Definitely that being familiar with multiple domain topologies covering computer vision, NLP, and so on and so forth, help us to be more familiar with all the options we have. Throughout the experience on working with the computer vision models or NLP models, we get to build up this experience on what type of topologies would work well with what type of data, would it work for supervised learning or unsupervised learning or unsupervised pre-training. So there are a lot of ideas that we build up throughout the experience on these different function, different models that we can uh, try and uh, borrow from the past experience. 
One thing that is very interesting to see these days, specifically related to deep learning advances, is that some of the newer deep learning advances that starting from computer vision models, if we tried it out in some of the existing NLP tasks, they actually also create better performance or improve the efficiency as well. For example, that the highway network or dense connections, these ideas were originally mostly coming from solving computer vision bottlenecks. Nowadays, that we can see that they improved the NLP model performance as well. So when we look at from a new use case perspective, first of all, we need to understand on a high level what type of data we're dealing with. Is it mostly a spatial type of data like images or it has a lot of a temporal component in it like a language or time series? And then based on the high level understanding on the nature of the data, we can look at all the options in terms of topologies and the techniques that people haven't shown on some of these typical applications and then try out the models that you wanted to build for this particular problem. The, another layer of a challenge is that the, the data is often being very messy and not only being unstructured, but also very messy in order to construct the features that can go into the neural networks. It takes a lot of understanding on about the domain and about the use case itself to see that what are the different sources of data that we can pull together in order to at least structure some features in order to feed into the neural networks. So in this type of experience, often that at Intel, that the data scientists and machine learning engineers are working with our partners and customers very closely. So we get to we get access to a lot of domain knowledge as well in order to really understand how we can structure the data. And then based on our own experience to build the topology that works for the problem and eventually try to build up a solution to by using the right software choice and the right hardware choice. The, the topology is the different layers of the neural network and how data passes through those different layers and feeds data, feeds updates back to the previous layers. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Why are there so many different, maybe this is, this might sound naive, like, you know, why do different neural networks have different topologies? Yeah, it's actually a pretty important question because, um, as you said earlier, that a layer, the, the, the role of a particular layer in the deep neural networks is, is to, to process the data from one level to the next level, but also take some error input based on the optimization on the top level. Take that error input and to adjust the weights within its own layer. So this this simple, seemingly simple process, actually, on a numerical perspective, it has a lot of challenges. Because sometimes if your network is very deep, then it's possible that the error signal you receive being backpropagated through many other layers is losing the information that you can actually learn from you as a, one of the layer inside this deep neural network. So... A lot of the techniques and the deep learning advances are really developed to tackle challenges around this area. For example, ResNet was developed in order to better provide ways to understand whether a layer is needed or help the gradient or error information backpropagate through the entire network. Sim similarly, highway network was constructed with a similar goal. Dense network was also created so that as a layer itself, not only it can receive input from its adjacent previous layer, but also it can receive input from several other previous layers. So that to make sure that if the adjacent layer doesn't do a good job to provide some input, 
there are other layers that provide additional input to help each of the layer to learn. So these are just the layer topology perspective. Besides the topologies, then there, there are other techniques in terms of designing the optimization techniques to also improve the learning capabilities of each individual layers. So then topology itself, not only dealing with the learning perspective, but also need to deal with what is the best structure to deal with the data itself. So when we deal with spatial data versus temporal data, that it replaces different requirements, what the layer should be doing. For example, in recurrent neural networks, the gradient or error message challenge we talked about earlier in image case actually become more prominent because every layer itself is going through this time unrolling process. So imagine this layer not only need to receive input and send out output, but within itself it needs to unroll iterations for, for example, 50 or 100 steps to really ingest this time series or this language data. In the process of doing this unrolling, it definitely tr- plays additional challenge because your your original input may get lost through the unrolling process. And uh, similarly, in the backpropagation process, that the error message that you need to learn from may also get lost throughout the process. So that that's why that there are many different topologies and techniques are designed in the past few years and even very actively these days try to make the network to learn better and in a more robust way. I want to dive into a specific use case for people to understand how you think about deep learning. And the use case that I want to talk about is object detection. So Deep learning topics are always hard to discuss on a podcast, and I think I'm gradually getting better at overseeing discussions of them. But uh, we'll go, you know, we'll go as deep as we can. So let's start with an explanation of what object detection is, because this is a subtopic of image recognition tasks. So explain. So there's there's object classification and there's also object detection. What are the differences between between these two problem sets? For object classification, the goal is to predict the category, the overall class or category of the image. Then, for example, a network will take an image as input and the output will be just a label saying it's cat or dog or it's a house. For object detection or sometimes called object localization, it will take the, the input, the, the image as input to the network. The output of the network are has two different type of output. One is a group of bounding boxes the network finds from this input image and associated with each of the bounding box the network will provide a label as you can see that combining the bounding boxes with the label that the network is able to tell very precisely that in this current image there will be a cat with at certain location and there will be a car at a different location so you're trying to detect where in an image an object is as opposed to just the binary is this a cat you're you're trying to find exactly where in the image the cat is that's exactly right i think an object detection model is good to run through because it explains the importance of pre-trained layers so image recognition neural networks can have these pre-trained layers. Explain what a pre-trained layer is. For a topology that originally used for image classification, many of the layers have been trained on a big data set, for example, ImageNet, that consists of a thousand classes and a million images. So throughout such a training process, these layers have been optimized to represent the features on different levels. After such image classification training, 
we wanted to reuse what we have learned, what the network has learned. And by taking out these layers and put them into a new network architecture that build based upon these set of layers to do further things, further things including definitely object detection. Definitely. So the idea of a pre-trained layer is almost like a module that you're importing from somebody's previous work on some deep learning project. And in the case of object detection, you will, you can utilize that pre-trained layer to give you a head start. You don't have to re- rebuild your entire model from scratch. And then in the you know the the other important parts of an object detection process are to create a feature map and then to cr- define regions of interest within your your image and then you have to define where the regions of interest map to features. Can you explain briefly what a feature map is and what a set of region of interests are and how those two things get unified in order to define where in an in an image different objects lie sure for a feature map that as you can consider that a network with a several layers with a network with a several layers which are good at extracting image features at the different levels of abstraction at the beginning that it will be more distracting edges or small features and gradually you started building up higher level features so at a certain point in the network that a layer of neurons take the input and create a certain reactions or activations to this set of input then that output activations is usually considered as a feature map so such a feature map that represent many different interesting information. So for example, if the neuron inside such a deep network is learned to detect a certain high-level features, such as detecting an eye or a part of a car, then it really shows that now with this current input image, whether such a feature exists inside your input image. With the feature map, it also shows that where in the image has interesting features, such as if you have a lot of frequency, uh, high frequency features with a lot of textures, or with a change of background, or with a certain contour of a certain object. All these things will trigger the, the layers to react in a very different way. To train a network to detect a region of interest, is using the similar idea that a region of interest is often defined as an area with a certain object in it. Or you can consider with a certain background and a part of that image, a part of that object is more distinct from the background itself. So with such such distinct features, it can trigger the network to react in a way that this area is a region of interest by telling the network which part of the feature map is more active. So looking at the more active part of the feature map, then it gives us this region of interest. Then in an object detection network, there could be one type of the, one type of the object detection network is using an operation called ROI pooling. So it pulls features from region of interest, ROI, into a small map and now do the image classification only within the ROI itself to do the object classification. So as you can see that it does this object detection in two steps to detect the ROI first and then to detect the class within the ROI. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I'm glad we ran through the object detection example because I think it's a tangible example. People can understand images, they can imagine images, and certainly anybody that's working on object detection will find it useful to have that explained by you. And I want to talk about NLP a bit now. So you've been spending a lot of time in NLP. How does the field of NLP and the topologies of NLP compare to the object detection topology that you just described? 
Yes. So for NLP models, that one distinct factor is about handling temporal data. So that it will definitely borrow ideas from image classification topologies, but also incorporate the factors that the network itself needs to know how to handle the temporal features itself. So I think some ideas that really borrowed from the image domain is things like skip connections and dense connections. Then it helped the network to really create better ways of backpropagating the error signals for the network to learn. Other than that, I think in general, convolution networks is a common topology used for image domain as for image domain. And for NLP, that there are a lot of empirical results to show that convolution layer itself can be directly applicable to NLP task and create a very compelling accuracy results as well. What are some of the other trends that you see in the NLP space? So one of the trends that I found is very interesting is that nowadays that even though there are differences between the data that it needs to handle, a lot of the technologies transfer pretty well from other domains to NLP. In terms of topology changes, in terms of techniques, uh, optimizations, in terms of data augmentation, and also there, there are a lot of interesting ideas using generative models to handle NLP as well. So I see the way that these days that in, inside the deep learning, a lot of the advances is triggered by computer vision or robotics or time series analysis get to transfer NLP as well. I help NLP to take on approach that is uh, complementary, but also different from the traditional approach as in a way that the traditional approach that are usually driven by um, human design rules or understanding on the language itself. Um, these days that with these type of deep neural networks, it help the NLP space to be more adaptive to the big data trend and being able to improve the performance based on bigger data set, uh, based on newer technologies. And it doesn't really require a lot of in-depth understanding about the language itself before you can create some interesting NLP models yourself. There's lots of enterprises that have tons of documents and various text formats that they would want to have NLP processing done on. What are some of the low-hanging fruits, the, the use cases that enterprises can apply NLP to and get significant value? A couple of interesting applications we see often from the our partners and customers are things related to sentiment analysis. An intuitive example for sentiment analysis is that you can look at reviews related to, for example, a movie that it really help you to understand how the users were, were reviewers, audience, look at such a movie and by providing a review on different aspects. And such a sentiment analysis is not only useful for movie reviews, but also is directly related to how you can understand your product adoption, how people react to different aspects of your product. For Also, for example, what in terms of customer relations, what are the aspects that the customers react differently? In terms of root cause analysis, then you can see that what are the aspects that usually triggers positive feedback or negative feedback. So one, one particular application, such as sentiment analysis, can actually bring many different business insights and related to the business models or the product a particular enterprise user is uh, building, then they can use these applications in several different ways. Another prominent use case is document similarity search. 
often that an enterprise user has a large collection of documents to to manage, to extract the insights and knowledge from. And uh, because of the the amount of text and the amount of information someone needs to handle, it becomes immanageable for a human user. With a good NLP application that you can do document similarity search, you can do relation extraction, and you can do keyword detection. And so with a very a set of very related NLP functionalities, you can create multiple applications and to suit your business requirements. And what are you working on? Are, are you working on anything specifically related to that? Is your team working on anything specifically related to those use cases? Yeah, so at Intel, that we have a team of NLP developers and researchers. For a long time, that we are very familiar with all these different state-of-the-art algorithms and new topologies and new algorithms. So in the process of doing these research and development, we, we feel like we could put a lot of these NLP components or applications or modules into a more comprehensive stack. We can look at this as a stack of NLP capabilities. And for internal development that people can share what are the individual modules that um, each one is working on, but also many of these modules can be reused and combined in many different ways to create applications or solutions. So we, we create this set of NLP modules as an NLP library, and we're hoping to make this available to the open source community sometime soon and to create more collaborations and research with the overall community as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, to zoom out, uh, I want to talk about more developer-oriented subjects. So, for example, the tooling around deep learning. Today, it feels like it's insufficient. You know, it's like, if I want to stand up a web application, I can use Ruby on Rails, and it's not very hard. But if I want to build a deep learning model for something, it's still quite difficult. There's a lot of domain-specific knowledge I need to know. I need to know about deep learning topologies. When is the tooling going to get better? <laughs> or like, you know, <laughs> Is it going to get better or is it always going to be this hard? <laughs> well, deep learning is a fast-evolving field. So it is it's exciting on one hand for researchers, but also very challenging for developers who are building tools. Because as soon as you provide a very good support, a set of functionalities or components, then there are new ideas and new topologies that your tool may not support. I think in general that these days that we do see that there are tools that are very tailored for beginners that you can start it by calling some high-level APIs and quickly create a new networks. And there are aspects of the tools to help you to ingest a data set so that you can build a model for a particular problem. So overall, there are a lot of efforts going on to help the, the user to learn and practice and understand the deep learning and become a deep, deep, deep learning data scientist. And uh, a good thing is that all these tools are uh, all open source and we have a very active open source community that the developers are supporting users and the users can even make contributions to the tool itself if you think that there are ways to improve that kind of user experience. But definitely it is because of the fact that the community is very active, there are a lot of new research ideas then there will be always an area that the tool can improve. But from um, my perspective that at Intel, that we did try a lot of ways to make sure that the, the initial user experience is as smooth as it can get. Also, inside the tools, we try to provide a lot of tutorials and examples. So usually when you start using a new framework, that by going through some of the 
beginners' examples, usually people get a a good sense on how to get started using this.、Mm. Well, and I think even just the hierarchy of abstractions, even if we don't have the tools to work with those abstractions at the right you know, from the from the developer's point of view correctly. You've drawn out this hierarchy. So, like at the lowest level, you've got the hardware, and then on top of the hardware, you have the frameworks, and then you have the neural network layers that you can build within the frameworks, and then those layers get composed into a topology. And we've talked about some different topologies, like things that you would build for object detection or NLP use cases, and then the the topologies. Can be abstracted into these higher level components. Like you could imagine a higher level component for object detection, and then those higher level components can be abstracted into applications. And then the the applications we know how to build those. We know how to build applications from components from APIs, and we know how to direct those at use cases. So that seems like a bright future. Like once we have the application level building blocks, things will get much easier. For sure, yeah. So I think these days that we do see that in terms of toolings, there are several layers that we can go beyond besides deep learning frameworks. So as we were talking about, there are layers and topologies, and components, applications. These are the the layers and the stacks、uh, sitting on top of some of the more fundamental deep learning frameworks. So all these layers will help users to get started. Based on which level of abstraction or level of flexibility that they want for their own particular use case, but the, definitely that the more component we can put into these different levels of the stack, it really can help and serve the the need for many different developers for their own applications. So you are part of the partnership on AI, which is. Well, why don't you explain to me what the partnership on AI does? So, partnership on AI is a nonprofit organization found in 2016. So, the organization is established to study and formulate some best practices AI technologies and help the public understanding of AI advances. As you know, that with the fast evolving field of AI. Mm, there are a lot of concerns and questions on the overall direction of AI technology. What type of benefit and impact it will really bring to the society? So the organization tries to bring people from、uh, different disciplines and create a platform or forum for these type of very open discussions and engagement. What are the to understand what could be the AI? Influences on people and society, and how, as an organization, how partnership on AI can have all the partners work together to make sure that the te- AI technology is in is evolving in a direction that is beneficial for industry and for public and for society and government as well. These are important issues. I just finished. Reading a book by Max Tegmark, where he was talking about some of these AI safety issues, and it's pretty hard to reason about because it's so so speculative at this point. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. I think often the case that as、uh, AI developers and practitioners, we we might be very focused on solving the problem itself, but people from very different perspective. That can actually see the impact beyond the problem that we intend to solve. So, understanding what could be the potential impact going into the society and people, and try to make sure that the technology is building in a way that is really beneficial for short-term and long-term impact. And even for the topic of how to make sure AI is beneficial to All these things, it's a it's a very complex topic. It has、um, several different aspects that people can try to start to address. Things related to safety safety critical AI applications, 
that touch upon things like um, autonomous driving is a very good example how we can make sure that the AI system building into the autonomous driving solutions is really addressing a lot of these uh, safety issues. There are topics related to fair, transparent, and accountable AI so that when we build an AI system, we need to make sure that it doesn't create unnecessary bias or unintentional bias. The AI system itself can be open and transparent and for people to understand what to, how to trust this AI system and how to use this in a very fair way. There are a lot of other topics that being structured uh, within partnership on AI as well. Things like AI labor and economy or AI for social good. So these are all very important topics. And of course, as, as I said, overall, it's a complex topic so that we have 54 partners at this point within Partnership on AI. So all these people coming from very different disciplines are trying to look at all these different aspects and think of ways or projects that we can work very closely on. So I think you're going to be at the Intel AI DevCon, which I'll be attending as well in, I think, a few weeks. What are the the themes that you're expecting to see at that conference? Yeah, Intel AI DEF CON is uh, May 23rd. So the, the trend that I'm expecting and I'm very excited to see that there will be people from several different disciplines within AI, from data science and machine learning, engineering, from application development, and from research get together to share their latest uh, uh, work and share their latest perspective. And also the goal to have a developer conference is that we wanted to show that all this work that we did in the recent time that how uh, really bring more ideas and options for the developers, for them to use these technologies and solutions that we build to solve their real world problems as, as, as well. So we're going to talk about a lot of these products that Intel is building in terms of AI framework softwares, um, in terms of different hardwares, but also uh, we're to showcase some of the use cases we worked on with our industry and academic partners. For example, there will be uh, our customers and partners that present at DevCon as well to talk about some of the healthcare use cases, the genomics use cases, or scientific simulation type of use cases that we work together on. Yen Yen, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Bye. Wow.